Awesome. Today we are concluding our series called The Box. This is week four in the final installment of the series, The Box. And what we've been talking about is how all of us have God in a box. For some of us, it's a small box. For some of us, it's a big box. But either way, what we need to do is take the lid off of our belief systems, off of our expectations, sometimes our preconceived ideas of who God is and what he wants from us, And we need to open up that lid and see just how big God really is, how good he really is, and what he really thinks about us and how we can live lives that are pleasing to God. That's what we've been talking about. And before we get too far into the message, I just want to take a moment and I want to recap where we've been over the last three weeks. I want to read to you from kind of the key text that we've been studying over the last few weeks. It's Colossians chapter 1. So I want to read this to you very quickly starting in verse 9 of Colossians 1. It says, for this reason, we also, since the day that we heard about it, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Colossian church, and what he's talking about is these new believers who are growing in their walk with God, and they're beginning to live fruitful Christian lives. He's saying, I heard about this, so I'm writing this letter to encourage you. Listen to what he says. Since the day we heard about this, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, right there immediately in verse 9, there's one thing that we, inter- that we kind of keyed in on at the beginning in the introduction of this series, and it's that God has a will for our lives. A lot of us, we know that, we believe that, but maybe we've never tapped into it. Let me just say this in a couple of different ways. First of all, God has a will for this world, for humanity. God has a will for his church, the body of Christ. That's all of us collectively. But God also has a will, a plan, and a purpose for our individual lives. And not only does he have a will, but he has made it available and accessible to us. We can know the will of God for our lives. Is that good news this morning? We can know God's will and his purposes for our life. And Apostle Paul was praying or writing this, and he was talking about the prayers that he was praying for these new believers. He says, I pray that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will. And how do we grow in our knowledge of his will? Through wisdom and spiritual understanding. If I was to just take those two things and put them very quickly in a nutshell to what they mean and how it is that we grow in them, we grow in wisdom by being in God's word. We grow in spiritual understanding by first being in his word, but then also tapping into that relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, who lives on the inside of us. So we grow in wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, verse 10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Pastor Gary talked about this last week. How is it that we walk worthy of the Lord? Because if we're honest, we think of ourselves as fallen, imperfect, sinful people. How can we walk worthy of the Lord? He said very specifically last week, we choose to live a life when we're in Christ that is appropriate. We live appropriate. And what I've discovered in my life is that because God the Holy Spirit lives here, and if I'm feeding my life with his word, the Holy Spirit keeps me in bounds so that I know when I'm living inappropriately. Anybody know that feeling where you know that the God, the Holy Spirit living here is convicting you say, I think I've gotten out of step with God. Maybe I'm out of bounds here according to his will, his word, and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. So again, verse 10, that we we may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It just simply means that you're continually daily walking in his direction, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And that leads us to verse 11, and this is what we're going to key in on today. This is what it says, Paul's writing, Colossians 1, verse 11, that you would be strengthened with all might according to 
his glorious power. Everybody say his. That you would be strengthened with his glorious power. Why is that important? Because God wants us to learn how to walk in his power and not just rely on our own. It's important that all of us as Christians understand this. Strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Now, it's really also important to understand that when it comes to walking in God's power, we understand God's power and God's grace when we have a full awareness of our weakness. And it was the same Apostle Paul here that writes in Colossians that also said, listen, I'm a weak person. I found that I'm a sinful man, but it's his grace, it's his strength that's made perfect in my weakness. So if I can come to God in my weakness, I find his grace is sufficient for me and his strength is made perfect in that weakness. If you were here last week, Pastor Gary gave this really great example, and he was talking about how for him growing up in church, he grew up in a pretty old-fashioned legalistic church where it was always filled and kind of outlined with do's and don'ts, rights and wrongs, goods and bads. Here's all the things that you should not do. And as a result, he was talking about how, you know, I just felt like I was always walking on eggshells with God. I was so worried that every little step I took, every little thing I did, I was going to make him unhappy with me, that he would never be pleased with my life. And I think one of the reasons why a lot of us feel that way and why that happens very often is because we can look at God for the don'ts rather than the do's. We can look at his word and think that what God wants us to do is to live a legalistic life. So we surround our life with rules and regulations, thinking that that's what will keep us in right standing with God. I want to say something today, and I hope everybody catches this and hears this. And if you don't hear anything else, grab this right now. God is not interested in your behavior modification. He is interested in your internal transformation. I'll say it again. If you are trying to please God with your external works, please understand. God is not interested in your behavioral modification. He's interested in your internal transformation. Why? Because God knows if we can get the internal things right, the external things will take care of themselves. Now, here's the thing. That's a lesson that not many of us learn early in our Christianity because we tend to look at Scripture and just see it for what it says on the surface, that the way we please God is just by following the rules. But can I just be honest with you? God is not a God of rules. God is a God of relationship. God doesn't want you to feel bound by the rules. I've met so many people throughout the years in church life that could tell stories of growing up in legalistic backgrounds where they felt like they could never make God happy, so they just walked away. How sad. And there's a lot of us who have been walking with God for a long time but still had a legalistic view of him. And even though we, we believed in him and we trusted him in our hearts, we were always afraid of making him unhappy with us. So therefore, we never stepped into the fullness of everything that we could have in a Christian life. It's important that we know, again, God is not interested in us pleasing him through behavior modification. God wants internal transformation. If you want to put a subtitle on this message today, this would be strength for everyday living. How can we discover strength, God's strength for our everyday living? Now, I think all of us know what it's like to have a misperception or a misconception about somebody else in life. Like, have you ever known somebody that before you really got to know them, you had a perception of who they were, only to later on find out that who you thought they were is not who they were at all? I think we've all had lots of experiences like that. I, I can remember specific times going all the way back to grade school with like kids that I went to school with where I thought one thing about them. And maybe my thoughts about them were framed by their appearance or the people that they hung out with, or I saw them from a distance or somebody else told me something about them 
So I had a perception of who they were in my mind, but I never really got to know them. And then later on, when I walked into, into a kind of a relationship with them and got, them, got to know them a little bit better, what I found was that the perception I had of them is not who they were at all. Anybody ever had an experience like that before? Let me just give you a couple of examples, and I'll just start with a lighthearted, kind of funny one, okay? When you're a preacher and you have little kids, there is endless material to talk about on Sundays, okay? I have a six-year-old daughter. She's my oldest. My kids have a routine when they go to bed at night, and we do pretty much the same thing every night when we put them to bed. We tuck them into their bed. We pray with them. We sing a song, and then we try to get out the door, hope they go to sleep, and not get up four or five times to go to the bathroom, come to our room, or go to the kitchen. You guys know what it's like. So we'll usually put our kids to bed, but this week, we put our kids to bed. We prayed. We sang a song. I got up to walk out, and my kids are snugglers. They like to snuggle. So my daughter looks at me and says, Daddy, come snuggle with me. Well, I'm not about to say no to that, all right? So, you know, I kind of just climb over and reach down to the bed there, and I lay down next to her, and I'm just kind of snuggled up with her. And she looks at me with this laser focus in a very serious tone, and she says, Daddy, I need to ask you a question. And I'm thinking, where's this about to go? And she says, Daddy, did you know that cowboys and cowgirls don't have alarm clocks? <laughs> and I said, they don't? And she says, nope, they have roosters. <laughs> I thought we were going to have a serious conversation, okay? So I said, really? They don't have alarm clocks, they have roosters. She says, yep. What happens is, before the sun comes up, the rooster gets up and goes, cock-a-doodle-doo! And the cowboys and cowgirls, they just get right up. And I'm like, okay, I'm following where she's going, but I'm wondering in my head, like, where does she get this, you know? Now, at this juncture of the story, there's something you need to know about me. Some of you know this, most of you probably don't. I was born in Arkansas, okay? We moved to California when I was seven years old, but I still have a lot of family back in the south and in Arkansas and that part of the country. And we go back pretty occasionally. My kids have been back a few times. And then my daughter says to me, Daddy, I have another question. I'm wondering if this is where we're going to take the serious turn. She says, when you lived in Arkansas, did you have an alarm clock? Or did you have a rooster? And I said, what? I said, baby, I don't understand. Why do you think? I don't get it. We had alarm clocks. And I said, why do you think that in Arkansas they don't have alarm clocks? She says, because I thought when you lived in Arkansas, you were a cowboy, and I thought that Arkansas was the Old West. <laughs> and so I had to explain to her very casually that, in fact, I was actually born in a hospital in Arkansas, and unlike Jesus, I was not born in a barn or a stable just because it was Arkansas. In fact, they have many modern am amenities, such as running water, plumbing, <laughs> automobiles, hospitals, uh, the internet, cellular phones. They even have Uber. And my daughter this whole time had this misperception about me and the place that I was born. She just thought that Arkansas was like full of rednecks and hillbillies. Okay, Arkansas is full of rednecks and hillbillies, but the point is she had this misperception about how it was that I was born and kind of where I was raised, well, not really where I was raised, but where I lived for the first few years of my life. Now, that's a funny story, being a little bit light right now, but let me just step it up and make this a little bit more serious. Six years ago, I came on staff, six plus years ago, came on staff here at the church, and somebody that's in our church, that's been a part of our church for a long time, uh, made an appointment just to go grab coffee one day, and I didn't know this person very well, they were kind of an acquaintance to me, 
And so I went to meet with them. We sat down for coffee, and I thought this is going to be a casual coffee where I talk about me, you talk about you. We get to know each other. What does life look like? Maybe a little bit of church. And so I just thought it would be fun and casual. And I got there. We got our coffees. We sat down, and within two minutes of the beginning of our conversation, it got really serious and really heavy because this person began to tell me how I had offended them deeply. And they really felt like I didn't like them. And I didn't want to know them. I didn't want to be in any kind of friendship or relationship with them. And they thought that, you know, maybe I just flat out didn't like them at all. And I was not expecting that whatsoever. And if i got to be really honest with you, in my flesh, I sat there and I thought, well, that's a total misperception. That's not my problem. That's your problem. Because I didn't do anything. I don't dislike you. I don't have an issue with you. That was what I was thinking in my head. But then I sat there for a moment and I just listened to them talk. And my heart just began to hurt. Because I realized, like, I wouldn't want anybody to think what he thinks about me. I wouldn't want him to think that about me because the truth is, not only do I not dislike them, but I like this person, have no reason to dislike them, and everybody I know that knows them better than me says nothing but good things about them. That was how I felt. And so I sat there, and the only thing I knew to do was I said, well, I think you have a bit of a misperception because I don't feel that way at all, but... Let me just apologize and say, I'm sorry. I'm so terribly sorry that I've made you feel that way because that's not the case. I don't dislike you. I have no issue with you. I have no reason to think anything but good things about you. And then I said, but I just have to ask, like, what was it that I did that made you think that I didn't like you? This person said to me, they said, there have been multiple Sundays where you've walked by and I've reached over just to say, hey, and you just kind of move right past me. Hey, how's it going? And just keep going. And you won't even take like two minutes to just chat real quick. And what I realized that day was that in the beginning, I thought this person just has a misperception. It's not my problem, it's theirs. But I used to be very, very intentional about on Sundays, not taking time to have long conversations, but just doing my best to move quickly with all the different responsibilities on a Sunday to just say hi very quick and just kind of quickly reach out and fast connect with people as best I could. But what I realized is that that's not a very good way to build relationships. And I had a misperception about myself and the way that I should do things on Sundays that collided with his misperception about me. And so here we have this awkward situation where he just kind of is open and honest with me and then I got open and honest with him and I said, I'm sorry. And not only that, but maybe I got to rethink the way I do this on Sundays. Because let's put this out there in the open. Sundays, my, my time is no more important than yours. Like time does not belong to me or belong to you. It's ours. It's something that we share. And so as a pastor, like, This time here at church is no more important to me than it is to you. It's important that we connect with one another. And I just had to apologize. But at the end of that conversation, the thing that happened was we put our misconceptions or our misperceptions aside. We got on the same page. And to this day, I consider that person my friend. Here's why I'm telling you that story. Because there are many of us that will walk through years of a relationship with God thinking that God is mean, God is harsh, God is judgmental, and if we don't do what he wants us to do, he will not be happy with us, and God is the big mean guy in the clouds waiting with the hammer behind his back for us to mess up so he can go, wham, gotcha, don't do that again. Can I just tell you something today? God is gracious, God is kind, God is merciful, God is loving, so much so that he gave Jesus to take our place on the cross. That's the character and the nature of God, and we need to know that about him. Before we go forward, let me just say again very quickly, God does not want you or me to go through life legalistically thinking that in order to please God, it's about following rules and regulations. Because in and of ourselves, in our own strength, we can't do it. But through a powerful relationship with the Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of us, 
We can live victorious lives. Somebody say amen to that this morning. Okay, now let's go forward and look at a couple of passages of Scripture because I really want to illustrate this to you as best I can. Look right now, first of all, at John, uh, excuse me, 1 John chapter 5. And I'll say real quick, if there's any of you that were here in first service, I misquoted the reference here. I said it was 1 John 1. We're looking at 1 John chapter 5, okay? Starting in verse 2. This is what it says. John's writings. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and we keep his commands. So we know that we love God and we love others when we keep God's commands. Verse 3. For this is the love of God. What's the love of God? That we keep his commandments. Now push stop right there for just a moment. This on the surface, if we just stop right there and we don't go any further, can sound like, oh man, another burden. The only way that I can show God that I love him and make God happy is if I do everything that he tells me to do and keep his commands. And God knows I'm not going to get all of those right. So it seems like a relationship with God is really, really difficult because I'm not so sure I can make him happy in all of my decisions. And if you just stop right there, you would think that God is a hard God who's not gracious and merciful and it's hard to be in relationship with him. But I want to say something to you today. The man who wrote this, John, John the Beloved, the Apostle John, was a man who walked with Jesus, who knew Jesus. Jesus called him and said, come and follow me. And John dropped everything to go follow Jesus. And at the time that he wrote this passage, Jesus has already ascended from this earth into heaven. And John looks back and says, you know what I still have found? Is that it's easy to follow the commandments of God, the commandments of Christ. It's not a burdensome exercise. Look what he says next in verse 4. Excuse me, at the end of verse 3, he goes on and he says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Did you know that keeping the commandments, the decrees, the laws of God should not be a burden to us? It should be something that we walk into with a sense of grace and a sense of ease. Why? Because we're not doing it in our own strength. We're doing it empowered by the Holy Spirit. Watch this, verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes The world, whatever is born of God, if you have experienced salvation, if you have accepted Christ into your heart, you have been born of God. You have been reborn. You have been regenerated. You are a child of God. And guess what? There is DNA potential inside of you to be an overcomer in every single area of life. And you might not feel it right now, but God implanted that thing inside of you at salvation, which gives you the ability not to experience your own victory, but to experience his victory in every area of your life. What an amazing thing that is. So you mean to tell me I don't have to get worried about pleasing God with my own fleshly decisions, my own willpower, becoming stronger in my own flesh? I can be empowered by the Holy Spirit? What an amazing thing that is. Now, he goes on. For, uh, excuse me, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, your faith. If I want to walk in overcoming God-like victory, then I do it by faith, recognizing that God now lives here. Jesus lives here. The Holy Spirit of God lives right here on the inside of me, and all the potential for victory is right here, and I access it by faith. Your faith means something. You have to step into it even if you don't see how it's going to work. You've got to take that step and believe that the DNA potential that God has implanted in you to be an overcomer is real and that you'll discover it as soon as you start taking those steps. And then he goes on, verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. It confirms it again. At salvation, God puts something on the inside of us that makes us successful overcomers. We just have to tap into it. Amen. 
It's up to us. Now, John wrote that in 1 John chapter 5. Let's go back and look at the Gospel of John for just a moment. In the Gospel of John chapter 14, John's writings, he quotes Jesus and what Jesus had to say about this. Watch the similarities between these two passages. Verse 15 of John 14. Jesus speaking, If you love me, keep my commands. Now, again, let's stop right there for a moment and just look at that on the surface. There are many of us as Christians who have looked at this and we have thought for years that what Jesus was saying here is you will prove to me that you love me when you do everything that I've told you to do. Which leads us to believe if we ever mess up and miss the mark or drop the ball that Jesus is going to be really unhappy with us. But what if that's not the case? Let me try to illustrate it like this. How many of you guys, let's just guys for a moment, how many of you just love household chores? I mean, how many of you, you just live to take out the trash? You just live, I was saying this in first service, can I just tell you my least favorite household chore? I do not like unloading the dishwasher. Because all the dishes aren't dry most of the time. Like, I don't understand this dishwasher, but anyway, I got to take the dishes out. I have to unload them. I have to put them in various places. And by putting them back where they go, I have to reorganize that area because there's a certain order that my wife wants on that shelf. And I, and I just don't like this process. I don't like doing it. Now, I'm just having a minute to complain to you for a minute there, okay? But seriously, my wife will occasionally call to me from, you know, maybe the other side of the house and be like, hey, babe, can you come take out this trash? And what I've discovered is that when my wife says that to me, what she's not saying is this. She's not saying, you will prove to me that you love me and that you are committed to me by coming and getting this trash, taking it outside and putting it in the larger can so that I don't have to smell it anymore. If you will do that, I will know <laughs> that you love me. Somebody said amen like my wife. I'm not going to point you out, brother. My wife doesn't do that. Now, even though I don't care to take out the trash, it's not my most favorite thing to do. In fact, I think my neighbor's dog's going to kill me every time I take it out. <laughs> even though I don't care to take out the trash, and unloading the dishwasher is not my favorite thing to do, can I just be really honest with you? When my wife asks me to do it, and I'm not telling you I'm a perfect guy, I'm far from it. I don't mind doing it because I love my wife. And a lot of us think that when Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands, what Jesus is saying is, you will prove to me that you love me by doing the things I've told you to do. And Jesus is not saying that at all. Jesus is saying, listen, when we have this loving relationship where you understand my heart and my character, that I'm loving, that I'm kind, that I'm gracious, and that I'm merciful, you'll look at my commands and you'll understand that you don't do these things just to make me happy. You do them because we have a loving relationship. And these things get done out of the flow of that love that we have between one another. Now, watch this. Read on and look at us, what else Jesus says here. Verse 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. That is, verse 17, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. See, when we talk about those things, like those household chores, just as a simple example, I'm not trying to show external love to make my wife happy. I have an internal love that means the flow of doing those things isn't a big deal. 
And what Jesus is saying here is you don't have to accomplish keeping my commands in your own fleshly, earthly strength. Instead, I'm going to send you an advocate, a helper, who will give you power to accomplish these things. And that was the promise that Jesus made. And I want to say one more time, Jesus is not interested in our behavior modification. He knows that if we can get internal transformation right, the external stuff will begin to take care of itself. Don't get trapped in a legalistic view of God that means i got to don't do all these things in order to make God happy. No, we need to focus in on the do's because if we can get that relationship right internally, it is a joy to walk with God every single day of our life. (laughs) Now that's what John wrote in two different places in the New Testament. Can I tell you today, we live in the New Testament era, okay? We have the Holy Spirit with us and in us. But watch this. This talks about the character of God. Let's look back at the Old Testament real quick. This is what the psalmist wrote about the laws of God. This is David, Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. A lot of us think that the laws of God are there to extinguish extinguish any joy that we could possibly be feeling. That's not what David said. He said the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. And he lived way back in the Old Testament days where it was a whole lot harder. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. In other words, we are simple-minded, but when we come to God and we give our life over to his commands, his spirit, his decrees, it gives wisdom to our lives. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. In other words, God's laws, God's decrees, his precepts, they bring joy into our life. The commands of the Lord are radiant. I love this. They are radiant, giving light to the eyes. That sounds a whole lot like Psalm 19. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It shows me where I stand and it shows me where I need to go. That's what the commands and the decrees of God are supposed to do in our life. Finally, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. Now, I wanted to read that to you real quick because when we sometimes think about the commandments of God, the laws of God, the precepts of God, we tend to think that what God wants us to do in order to make him happy is he wants us to be boxed in by his commandments, his laws, his precepts, his decrees, and we're enslaved. to. We have to live within those boundaries in order to make God happy. But let me just tell you what I've found. Another example. In our backyard, we have a small backyard, but there's a fence around our backyard. And I have control over what's going on in the backyard. So when my kids go to the back door and they open up that back door and they go into the backyard, I'll check on them every few minutes, but I'm not worried about what they're doing out there because I have control over that environment. And I know that as long as they stay inside of the boundaries and the parameters of that environment, they're going to be safe. That doesn't mean they're not going to be curious about what's going on on the other side of the fence. It means that if they will stay within those parameters, there's safety, and they can do whatever they want to do within reason, back there, and they could experience freedom within those parameters. We tend to think with the laws of God, the commandments of God, the ways of God, that these are restrictions that God puts around us, and there's no freedom to be found in it. But can I tell you something? The reason God gives us his commands, his ways, his precepts, is because within the boundaries of those commands is God's blessing and God's provision and God's protection. And if we will stay within his boundaries of commandments, what we find is that we're not enslaved. In fact, there is true freedom to be found there. 
And that is one of the biggest misperceptions or misconceptions that many people have when they look at Christianity or people who are new to the faith. They think, I've got to do all this stuff to make God happy. And God wants to be a killjoy who takes away all my fun. No, true freedom is found within the parameters of God's protection, his provision, and his blessing. Listen, there is blessing within the boundaries of the commandments of God. And if we will choose to stay within his blessing and his provision, we'll find true freedom in all of those areas. i got to hurry. Now, we talked a little bit about legalism earlier and not getting wrapped up in rules and regulations. There's one specific book of the New Testament where the Apostle Paul had to deal with this exact issue, and it's the book of Galatians. In Galatians, what was happening is there was these Gentile believers, these new believers that were coming into relationship with God and getting saved, and they were coming into this relationship and really being set free and finding all kinds of purpose, salvation, and everything that Jesus had to offer them. But what was happening was the Jewish believers, who were also relatively new converts, were telling them that in order for you to get the blessing of God, you have to follow through with all of the Old Testament laws and all of the Old Testament rituals and even the Old Testament covenant signs. Most specifically in the book of Galatians, the covenant sign of circumcision. Now, we're not going to get into everything that that meant, but that was a covenant sign in the Old Testament. And these Jewish believers were telling the Gentile believers, you're not going to make God happy unless you follow through with these rules. And the Apostle Paul hears about it, and he writes them this letter, and he says, no, 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 no. Stop, stop, stop. Don't put this burden on them. We have a better covenant with Jesus than what we had in the Old Testament. Don't make them think that they are going to please God simply by hold, or holding on to rules and regulations. So he begins to address this, and that leads us right in to what he says in Galatians chapter 5. Many of you know this passage. Verse 1 of Galatians 5. Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Say it again. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I heard a preacher say recently that this is a weird sentence because grammatically speaking, it's redundant. Jesus gave us freedom so that we could be free. Sounds kind of obvious, right? How are we free? Because Jesus has given us freedom. It's grammatically a strange sentence. If Jesus has given us freedom, then why are so many of us walking around in bondage to legalism? That's what he's addressing here. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. And if, the, if whom the Son sets free is free indeed, then we ought to get in step with Jesus and understand that he did not want to give us a yoke of bondage to be tied to legalism. He wants us to understand that walking with him is something that we can do successfully when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let's go on. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Look at verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And right here, Paul, he's introducing this conflict. You have the flesh and the spirit, the spirit that lives on the inside of us, but those fleshly desires that are always acting out and in conflict with the spirit that lives inside of us. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. To put that in a different way, what he's saying here is, there's a voice inside of you that's telling you here's the right way to go, but your flesh is always fighting it so that you don't do the thing you know you're supposed to do. This is why Paul also wrote, look, I always find myself, I know I'm supposed to do this, but instead I find myself doing that. And when I want to do that, I find myself doing this because it's this conflict of the flesh and the spirit. Let's go on. Verse 18, but if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh 
are obvious. Now watch this because many of you know what we're about to cover. Galatians chapter 5 talks about the fruits of the Spirit. But before Paul mentions the fruits of the Spirit, what does he basically mention here? The fruits of walking in the flesh. This is the obedient or uh, the uh, behavior of walking in the flesh. Watch this. But you are led, or excuse me, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Now, some of you are like, oh my God, the Bible talks about that? They were crazy in the first century. Come on, laugh. About as crazy as today, right? (laughs) And he goes on and he says these words. He says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, can we all just acknowledge right there that that's pretty heavy? Because in the flesh we're confronted, oh, i got to get those behaviors under control. Can I tell you something? You will never overcome, overcome your fleshly desires with more fleshly strength. You'll only overcome it by the power of the Holy Spirit that wants to be alive and active on the inside of you. And a lot of us, even our Christian walk, will struggle with some of the things that he mentioned right there because we haven't tapped into the power, the potential, the DNA that lives on the inside of us that wants us to be an overcomer because of Jesus. So he goes on, after he's warned, he says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. In other words, there is a law against those other kinds of behaviors. But if you have the Spirit of God at work and alive on the inside of you, it's going to produce these good things. And guess what? There ain't no legalism in that. Ain't nobody that's going to come to you and say, stop being so patient. Stop having so much joy. Stop being so loving toward other people. There is no law. There is no legalism against that. Instead, what we find is that our life is producing good things, and it's not because of our own fleshly strength. It's because of the strength of the Spirit of God that lives on the inside of us. It's funny because we started in Colossians chapter 1. It says in verse 11 of Colossians 1, I pray that you will be strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for what? For all patience and long-suffering with joy. What are those three things? Three of the fruits of the Spirit. Because we're stronger when the Spirit of God that's inside of us is at work rather than trying to overcome these things in our flesh. In closing today, I have a friend that's a pastor. He's been uh, in pastoral ministry for somewhere around 40 years. And he was very, very instrumental in my life as I was kind of growing in God and figuring out what God had for my life. And then when it came to like ministry and calling and all that, he played an enormous role in my life. And he has this crazy testimony because when he was a much younger man, he had some serious issues with addiction and substance abuse. And there was somebody that came along in his life and told him about Jesus. At the lowest point of his life, he found himself one night sitting in front of a fireplace in a house just crying out to God. And he said, Jesus, I don't even know if you're real. But if you are, I need to hear from you. I need to know that you are real because I need help. I need to find purpose for my life because I know that things are just going down the tubes for me. 
And what ended up happening in his life was he had this supernatural encounter with Jesus that changed everything for him. And he got saved, he gave his life to Jesus, and he's been in ministry for a long, long time. And I remember sitting with him one night, I was at his house and we were sitting around his dining room table and I had heard him tell that story so many times. And I just asked him this question. I said, I, I need to know. I said, I've heard in your testimony so many times you have told the story of how when you gave your life to Jesus, you were supernaturally delivered from your addictions. I mean, this guy was just healed and delivered instantaneously from all the addictions that he had. And it was this amazing testimony. And I told him, I said, I believe that God can do that. I believe that God can deliver, that he can save, that he can take away addictions. I believe that God can heal the worst disease in anybody's body in this place right now. And I told him that, and I said, I believe that God can do that, but I gotta be honest with you. I said, can you just kind of explain to me the mechanics of that? Like, what, how did that go? How is it that addiction was just gone? And he said, the thing that happened instantaneously at the moment I gave my life to Christ, the need, the urge, the want, the desire for those things went away just like that. And I asked him, I said, but how did you know? Because I'm kind of logical, a little bit, I hope. I said, how did you know? He said, because before I had that encounter with Jesus, I was so messed up on drugs. And after that encounter with Jesus, I didn't want them anymore. And he told me this. He said, I know I was instantaneously delivered from my addictions. He said, however, if I had not submitted my life to Christ at that, no at that moment, I know I could have easily walked back into the other lifestyle and reopened the door for those desires. And he told me this, and I've never forgotten it as long as I live. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. He said, when the scripture says to delight yourself in the Lord, it means to be pliable like clay in the hands of the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he doesn't just give you all the things you want. He gives you your desires. He said, what I found was I began to delight myself in the Lord and suddenly his desires were implanted into my heart and the things that I used to want, I didn't want anymore. And we read this in 1 John 5. How is it that we overcome? How is it that we discover that victory? Through our faith. We have to recognize that God the Holy Spirit lives here. We're not just trying to please God on the outside. We're giving God control on the inside because when we get the inside things right, the outside things will follow. But every single day, it's a decision to walk in faith and believe that, God, you've given me victory. God, I know that I'm an overcomer, so I trust in that today. I choose to walk in that today, and this is my faith that I'm victorious no matter what I'm facing. I'm not going to do it in my strength. I'm not going to do it in my flesh. I'm leaning on you because your strength is better than mine. Your grace is way better than my weakness. That has to be our daily confession, and that's how we will experience success, victory, and overcoming the obstacles that we face in life. Very last thing, I just want to give these to you really quickly. If you happen to be taking notes this morning, you might have asked the question, and you might have just said it, how do I tap into God's strength for everyday life? Three things, real quick. Number one, light the lamp. Light the lamp. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet, it's a light to my path. There are Christians in this room, we have heard that passage of scripture for years, but we have failed to light the lamp. The lamp stays unlit in our daily lives. What would happen if we came to God on a daily basis and say, God, this is where I stand. When we open up God's word, we say, God, show me what's going on in my life, because I don't understand all the details. Not only that, but illuminate my path. Show me where it is that I need to go because I don't want to walk down the path that I have for myself. I want to walk down the path that you have for me. 
What would happen if we lit the lamp on a daily basis and invited God's word to have say, to be the trump card in our life? Light the lamp. Second thing I would say, if you're taking notes, quick take-homes, engage the conversation. Remember, God is not external of us. God, the Holy Spirit, if you are in Christ, lives right here. And on a daily basis, we have the opportunity to engage that conversation. Say, God, at every single decision I make today, on every step that I take, I want to hear the whisper of the still small voice in every little thing that I do. So today, I start the conversation. I want you to know I'm listening. I'm here. Speak to me today. Lead me. Guide me. Show me the ways that you want me to walk today. Engage the conversation. Third and final thing, walk the walk. Walk the walk. If we're in God's word, if we're in fellowship with God, the Holy Spirit, we can walk in faith and take steps of faith knowing that he's going to lead us where he wants us to go. We will walk victorious. Would you stand with me this morning? I just want to close in a bit of a different way because this month as we've been talking about taking the lid off of our belief systems and believing for God to be bigger, I just want to end this month, end this service with just a declaration from all of us where we say, God, come and have your way. Do something bigger. Be more. Be more than what I've seen, than what I've expected. We look to your word, God, and we believe that you're greater than what we've experienced. You might be here today and you're waiting for God to prove himself to you. Can I tell you something? That God wants to meet you in the middle of that journey, in the middle of that walk. Jesus said, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. And I want to encourage some people today, when it comes to this walk with God, if we will draw near to God, it's going to be amazing to see what he does on the other side of our steps of faith. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go through life limiting God. Instead, I want to take the lid off of my experience and take the lid off of my expectations and see God do even greater things than I've ever seen before. Anybody with me on that this morning? Would you just stretch out your hands like this and let's just pray. Let's just invite God in. Let's just submit and surrender our ways to him. Father, I pray that throughout the days of our life that we would look to you and ask you to be bigger, to be greater, to be stronger, maybe than we've even expected you to be in the past. God, your word declares that you can do, you are the one who does exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask, think, or imagine. God, so we set our imaginations, our thoughts, our preconceived ideas aside. We say, God, have your way. Do greater things. God, do greater things in the lives of your people in this place. We don't want to settle for the old. We look to the new. We recognize that the old is gone, and we want the new to come. God, be greater. Be bigger. Be stronger. For the ones who've been holding out hope for healing, God, heal bodies in Jesus' name. God, for the ones who've been praying for loved ones, I pray that you would save them, that you would deliver them, that you would bring them back home and into relationship with you. God, for the ones who are believing for new jobs, we speak better employment into their life today in Jesus' name. We pray for struggling businesses today in Jesus' name, and I speak godly prosperity into those situations, Father, that you would bring about new opportunities, Father. I pray, Jesus, that you would speak to people who feel as though they're walking through barren wilderness experiences right now, that they would know the sound of your voice in their everyday lives, and that you would show yourself strong on their behalf in every single step that they take. God, I pray for the one who is experiencing anxiety or depression or hurt in their physical body right now over these worries that they're carrying. I pray that you would step in and remove those worries, those fears, that anxiety, and that they would be let go and walk away free in this place today. In Jesus' name. God, we declare you are 
a healer. We declare that you still heal. We declare that you are a provider. You are our source. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. We will not lack any good thing that we need because you are our God, you are our Father, and you give good gifts to your children. And I pray, God, finally, that you would show us how to be good stewards of what you bring into our life so that we can steward the resource you've given us to be a blessing to the kingdom of God and the world around us. God, finally, let us know your supernatural power at work in our daily lives. Let us not rest on yesterday. Let us not try to do it in our own strength and in our own flesh. Let us find the spirit of the living God at work in our daily lives, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Finally, just with heads bowed, eyes closed, I'm sorry we're going a little bit over here. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, I want to tell you there's no better decision you can make in life than to walk in a relationship with him. You might be here today and you feel like you're on the outside looking in. You say, how do I even walk into a relationship with God? Let me tell you the best way I know how. Scripture tells us that we are fallen, sinful people. Scripture says that all of us have fallen short of God's perfection and God's glory. We are sinful and we have a fallen nature. But God loved us so much in the middle of our sinfulness that he sent Jesus to this earth to live a sinless, spotless life and then go to the cross and take the sin of our life upon him so that we wouldn't have to face death eternally. But he didn't stop there because scripture tells us that in three days, God took Jesus who died on the cross and he raised him from the dead, conquering death and hell in the grave so that you and I would not have to face it when this life comes to an end. And if we would put our faith in Jesus, we could experience salvation and we can walk into the greatest purposes that we could ever discover. If you're here today and you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life and declare that he is your savior, that is step number one to finding everything that he has for you. There's a room full of people that have made that decision at some point in their life. And we're going to pray a prayer here in just a moment. We're all going to pray it out loud together. And if you want to make a commitment to Jesus today or maybe even rededicate your life, I want to invite you to join in on this. Say it with everything inside of you. Mean it with everything inside of you. We're going to give our lives back to Jesus. Would you repeat these words? Say, dear Jesus, I thank you that you went to the cross for me. I believe you died for me. I believe that you are my Savior. Today I ask you to become the Lord of my life. Change me. Cleanse me. Fill me, lead me, guide me, and teach me your ways. I will walk with you in this life into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, can we just put our hands together and welcome some people into God's family today? All right, now real quick while everybody's standing, sorry, just please do us a favor, hang tight till the end of service just out of respect for everybody else around you. We're almost done today, okay? If you made a decision to follow Jesus for the first time or you rededicated your life to him, we want to help you take your next steps. This is not about us, this is about you. If you're here today and you made that decision, please let us help you out and take your next steps. We want to put a free gift in your hand. It's called The Next Seven Days. It's a simple book to help you start your walk with God. There's two ways you can get it. Right after the service, at the end of the service, right down here in front of this platform, we have prayer teams that will be coming forward. They're here to pray with you, to encourage you. If you want to get that book because today you made a decision, just walk up. Let them know you made the decision to follow Jesus and you want to get the book. They'll give it to you. We don't need anything from you 
but we're here to help in any way that we can. If you need to go quickly at the end of service, stop by the next seven days desk. It's between the glass doors before you exit the building. Let them know you made a decision. They'll give you that book and help you get started in your walk with God. We're grateful that you made that decision. It's the best decision you could ever make. Thank you so much for doing that. One more time, let's just put our hands together and welcome some people into God's family.